Today, we are recording the second episode of Trainee Pearls, a new initiative brought to you by the EBMT Trainee Committee. And today we have the pleasure to have with us Dr. Emma Grork from the hematology branch of the National Health, Lung and Blood Institute of NIH, Bethesda, United States, to discuss about the recent research work on VEXA syndrome published by the NIH group. Emma, first of all, thank you very much for accepting our invitation and it is a pleasure to have you with us. How are you today? I'm very well and thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about Texas. Thank you so much. I feel we are somehow celebrating the birthday of Vexas because it's like uh, about one year that the first paper in uh, New England came out, right? And yeah, I think it was the end of October last year where it was put online and then officially in December. So yes. So pretty much like uh, we are maybe celebrating anniversary, yes. the anniversary of Vexus syndrome. And I already see in PubMed 57 articles pu uh, published on it. It's quite impressive. Don't you think so? I think so. And it's funny because, you know, every time the initial article gets cited, I get an email. So I wake up all the time like, oh, another citation. Oh, nice. But I think it's just really cool that, you know, that our paper has generated so much interest and so much, you know, work in the community. Yeah, it has been um, really well received by the entire community, both hematologists, and rheumatologist immunologists, because it's like yeah. pretty much an, overlap, an overlapping spectrum kind of syndrome. But uh, yeah. first of all, can you explain us what the acronyms stand for? Um, yeah, so VEXUS is an acronym that's derived from, I guess, particular features of the disease. Um, so V is for the characteristic vacuoles that you see in the bone marrow aspirate. Um, E1 is for the E1 um, ubiquitin enzyme, which is what UVA1 actually codes for. Uh, the X and the S um, stand for X-linked and somatic because it's an X-linked somatic mutation. And then the A is for auto-inflammatory because that's one of the predominant uh, manifestations clinically of VEXAS. I see. So of course, like VEXAS is also very appealing. Uh, uh, sounds very, um, a very nice um, and... Uh, catchy name to remember. Um, <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more about the pathogenesis of VEXAS, uh, like the somatic mutation underlying these conditions? Um, what happened? Uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, the, the way that VEXAS was discovered is actually quite interesting. Um, so there was a researcher, just so Dr. David Beck, who was first author on the New England Journal paper. Um, so he works in the Genome Institute and he was examining exome data um, from a genetic database of patients with undiagnosed inflammatory disorders at NIH. And he found three patients who were all male and had a um, variant in UVA1 that was new. Um, and, you know, they all had a very similar clinical phenotype. Um, so from there, he went on to find 22 more patients who had a very similar clinical phenotype and also had the same UVA1 variant. And then our team became involved really once it became apparent that some of these patients also had some hematologic manifestations. Um, so the UBA1 gene itself is X-linked, as I mentioned. It encodes for this E1 enzyme, which is critical in regulating protein homeostasis. And the mutation in UBA1 leads to production of an ineffective isoform 
um, that results in loss of UVA1 function. And interestingly, when we were working this up, we found that the mutation is restricted to hemopoietic stem cells, or sorry, hemopoietic cells, um, as far as we can tell. And in particular, the hemopoietic stem cells and early progenitors, as well as mature myeloid cells and erythroids. But it's absent in mature lymphoid cells, which I think is quite interesting. And then further workup was done, and it was noted that patients had very elevated um, serum cytokines, um, and this includes CRP, IL-6, interferon gamma, and then gene expression profiling was done of monocytes and neutrophils of the patients that showed a highly activated inflammatory phenotype. Um, and pathways were activated, including TNF, alpha, interferon gamma, interleukin-6. Um, and then some, some of our collaborators at NIH um, developed this zebrafish model of UBA1. A knockdown of, of the zebrafish UBA1 model also showed that um, the zebrafish were developing systemic inflammation. So I guess overall, it, it appears that the mutated myeloid cells are somehow driving inflammation. Um, it's not 100% clear, you know, why this is the case, and I think there's a lot more work that still needs to be done, but that is kind of the general pathophysiology as we know it at the moment. Thank you. So you mentioned inflammation, IL-6, uh, CRP. So what all these generates uh, as to clinical features, hematological and extra hematological of these patients with Vexus syndrome? Yeah, so I think patients with Vexus syndrome, um, first and foremost, have a very severe systemic inflammatory disorder. Um, it's usually progressive and often treatment refractory, um, except to very high doses of steroids. And from an inflammatory point of view, I'd say that the common signs and symptoms that we see are, are recurrent fevers. A lot of patients have skin lesions. They can get chondritis, particularly ear and nose chondritis. Patients can also get pretty bad pulmonary infiltrates, but really the inflammation seems to be able to target lots of different organs. And as you mentioned, you know, there's all these things on PubMed where things are being really reported every few days, a, a new um, systemic manifestation of Vexus. So I don't think we've really um, seen the full heterogeneity of the condition as of yet, but that's what we've seen to date. And a lot of these patients have received rheumatologic diagnoses before we knew they had Vexus. Um, I think the commonest was probably relapsing polychondritis, also sweet syndrome, and different forms of systemic vasculitis as well. Um, and then I guess in terms of the hematologic conditions, which I guess we'd be more interested in. Um, so we do see that most patients have cytopenias of some kind. Um, the commonest is macrocytic anemia. I think the majority of patients have some sort of macrocytic anemia. Um, we've also seen lymphopenia in the majority of patients, although this is hard to tease out because they're all on immunosuppressants and steroids. Um, we've also seen monocytopenia in a lot of the patients, around half of them. Um, and a lot of patients can actually develop quite severe anemia that becomes transfusion dependent. And this is even in the absence absence of actually developing MDS, which is another risk with these patients. Um, so hematological malignancy um, appears to be common in these patients. Um, the commonest are MDS and plasma cell dyscrasia so far. 
Um, we have we have a paper that was published in Blood Advances a few months ago, where we did really deep clinical kind of hematologic phenotyping of 16 patients that we saw in the hematology clinic at NIH. Um, and they all had bone marrows and had a full hematological workup. And of those patients, six of them had MDS, like overt MDS and morphological dysplasia. Most of those had cytogenetic abnormalities. Um, we had two at MGUS as well, um, and also two that had full-blown myeloma or smoldering myeloma. And I think something interesting about the MDS is that to date, most of it seems to be low-risk MDS. Um, all the patients at NIH that we've seen so far have had low-risk MDS. We haven't seen any transformed to leukemia or have chromosome 7 abnormalities. Now, there are a couple of cases in the literature where there have been a couple of high-risk MDSs reported. So it does seem it can happen, but it doesn't seem to be the predominant MDS genotype that develops. I do think it's really interesting that there has always been this kind of clinical association between MDS and inflammatory disorders and autoimmune disorders, and that Bexis you know, probably does account for some of those historical diagnoses. And I know even myself as a trainee have seen patients that I think back now, oh, it may have been Vexus. Yeah. Um, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess the, the other big thing is the plasma cell dyscrasias. I think we have less data on these so far. There's not a lot in the literature about this. Um, from what we've seen in R4, we, we did see that I think three of them did have um, translocation of 1114, which is a bit uncommon in untreated myeloma, um, and also increased expression of cyclin D1, which isn't all that common either in myeloma. So that seems to be something that you know might pinpoint towards Vexus, but again, these are really this is like four patients, so we really can't make major comments on this. But this is something that we're really interested in looking further at, um, more about the myeloma phenotype in these patients. And I think something really interesting about the fact that they do seem to develop myeloma is that the UBA1 does not seem to be present in the lymphoid, mature lymphoid cells. So it's kind of unclear why they're developing myeloma. Um, so I guess our hypothesis on that is maybe it's some kind of, you know, environmental um, Thing, you know, in the bone marrow that the UBA1 is driving, is driving myeloma potentially. But either way, I think it's a very interesting area that definitely needs a lot more study. And then I guess the final thing I want to highlight um, that I'm particularly interested in myself is the thrombotic risk in these patients. Um, so in our cohort, we had around uh, 16 patients. We had 60% of them had had some sort of clot. Um, most of them, it was VTE, uh, mostly DVTs, but also PEs as well, but one arterial stroke. And I guess the reason why this is happening, again, we don't really know, but hypotheses would be that it's related to the severe inflammation that these patients have. And we have been doing some very basic workup um, of what we were able to do in the coagulation lab. And a couple of, in a few patients, we did do factor levels and we found that the factor eight's a bit high and some of the, is high in some of the patients. So this may point towards inflammation driving the, the thrombosis. The other thing we've noticed that I thought was interesting is a lot of the patients around 50% seem to have a positive lupus anticoagulant. Oh, wow. And, but they don't have positive anticardiolipin or beta-2 lipoprotein antibodies. So it seems that there may be something antibody-mediated going on, but not like clear-cut antiphospholipid syndrome. And then the final thing just about the thrombosis that we, that we are considering is that there is this um, 
netosis that's been shown in patients with uh, vexus. And we know that that's something else that could contribute to thrombosis. So that might be something else that's worth exploring as well and, and to why these patients develop thrombosis. So overall, I feel like vexus is like, you know, it has something for every hematologist basically, benign, malignant, if you're interested in kind of plasma cells or, or myeloid malignancies. It's very chameleontic, how, how can we say it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and it's also the fascinating part of it, uh, if we if we want, because of course, like there's so much to tell, so much to study, and uh, that's the beauty of it. Uh, but according to what you've just said, uh, depicting the clinical phenotypes of this patient, uh, which patient uh, that will present to your outpatient clinic, for example, with uh, um, like a syndromic, uh, with these syndromic features, uh, will you consider to test for UBA1 mutations, uh, all MDS, uh, all plasma cell dyscrasias, or only selected categories, maybe with these uh, features that resemble these, uh, the Vexus syndrome uh, features? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. And this is something that we haven't really figured out ourselves yet. But I think what we're doing at the moment is that any male patients, again, it's X-linked. So these are predominantly men, although there is a case report of one female that has this, that had Turner syndrome, but generally it's men that get this. Um, so a male patient who has MDS or MGUS and some kind of overlapping inflammatory phenotype um, is someone that I would be considering testing. Um, also patients that, you know, they don't have to have MDS, but if they have some kind of um, cytopenia related to inflammation, I would probably test them as well, particularly macrocytic anemia. That seems to be the predominant cytopenia that would concern me. Um, if patients are having marrows for some reason and you see vacuoles in the marrow, I think this is another important indication Now, there are obviously other causes of this, um, but if you don't have a clear cause of vacuolation, I think you should test these patients for, for vexus. Um, and I think with MDS, you know, most patients will have a marrow and you may be suspicious looking at the marrow that you see the vacuoles, although there have actually been, you know, a couple of cases that don't have vacuoles. So it's not 100%. So I think if you have inflammation and MDS together, you should send it even if you don't have vacuoles. But most of them do seem to have vacuoles. I think with MGUS, it's a bit um, trickier because I think a lot of these patients don't have marrows. It's, it's commoner to have MGUS than MDS. Um, and you don't want to be testing every single MGUS patient for UBA1, I don't think. So I think I would, at the moment, I would advise if you're suspicious based on the clinical phenotypes and kind of inflammatory, you know, symptoms or something like that, I would consider it. Myeloma, you know, we, maybe with the, the T1114 cyclin D1, that might be a marker, but we, I don't think we know enough about that yet. But again, again, if you're seeing vacuoles and a marrow with a patient with myeloma or they have some other inflammatory phenotype, that's when I would consider it. Um, I do think ultimately that UBA1 will probably be added to the myeloid gene panel and it will probably end up being done in most MDS patients but it's not the case at the moment. It can be somewhat tricky to get testing for a lot of people still. Um, we do offer it at NIH. If, you know, if people are concerned about Texas, they can contact NIH and we can organize testing free of charge. Um, for, pay for people who are um, based in Europe, it's also being offered in Leeds in the UK. So that's another option for European doctors to, to send testing. 
Um, in terms of you know, patients who are presented to a rheumatology clinic, I think this is another question that we've been asked. And our rheumatologists um, did publish a paper um, pretty soon after the original New England Journal paper where they looked at their cohort of relapsing polychondritis patients. And they found that having macrocytic anemia really very well predicted for vexus in that cohort. So they're really advising that, you know, from, for rheumatology patients, if they have macrocytic anemia, that is something you need to consider um, to consider vexus syndrome. I see. Thank you. So now that we more or less uh, talked about the clinical phenotypes of this patient, uh, um, let's move on on the therapeutic strategies. Of course, we are talking about uh, hematological, extra hematological manifestations. So maybe let's bottom down, narrow down to the hematological part that is like uh, what uh, uh, interests us the most. Uh, so do you have any advice on specific treatment for the hematological manifestation? And uh, is it important, in your opinion, to uh, play in a uh, unite front together with the uh, rheumatologist, immunologist, in order to have um, the possibility of exchange um, opinions and uh, share thoughts with our colleagues in a multidisciplinary team. Yeah, so I think, um, first of all, to say that, you know, treatment for vexus is in the very early stages. So we really have very little data to go on. And most of what I'm saying is coming from very small case series reports, unfortunately, and hopefully that will change. You know, that's something we're working on at NIH, developing clinical trials for patients with vexus. But at the moment, we don't have a lot to go on. Um, so I think that the way we're generally approaching it is that there's kind of three aspects we need to consider. Um, so one is trying to eradicate the clone in some way. So, you know, by doing that, we would hopefully, you know, both get rid of the ongoing inflammation and also any potential hematologic manifestations that might develop and neoplastic um, consequences. So that's approach number one. Approach number two are therapies that target inflammatory pathways specifically, um, you know, as the pr predominant feature of vexus is inflammatory. So that's something very important. And then three would be supportive care. So there are some important things to consider here as well for vexus patients. Um, so in terms of targeting the clone, I think the two main approaches here would be either some sort of stem cell transplant um, or some kind of medical therapy that's cytotoxic or a synthetic lethal drug therapy to try and target the clone. I guess theoretically there are a lot of drugs here that you could consider. Um, there is really very little evidence for any of them. The only one that's really been published at all is azacitidine. Um, so there's been two publications using azacitidine, and in those publications, the response rates were around 50%. Now, patients who received azacitidine, for the most part, all had MDS or some sort of myeloid malignancy, and they did seem to respond, and around 50%. But I think the other interesting thing with the azacitidine is that a lot of the patients also seem to respond from an inflammatory point of view to the azacitidine. So it was you know, it helped their hematologic manifestations, but it also seemed to help their inflammatory manifestations. And that's probably because the clone was being targeted. Um, so I think that's it. That's an interesting therapy that we're definitely interested in looking at um, more. Um, for the inflammatory symptoms, the predominant 
therapy that's being used at the moment and that does have some evidence in the literature are JAK inhibitors. Um, so there's been a couple of publications from the French group about this and you know they, they seem to be somewhat efficacious in, in controlling the inflammatory symptoms. Um, but again, you know, most of the temporizing anti-inflammatories that are used, they do seem to work for a certain period of time and then patients will relapse and end up needing to go back on steroids. And then in terms of supportive care, I think an important thing to consider here is that actually the patients seem to be at very high risk of opportunistic infections, um, probably related to the high dose steroids that they're on, but also, you know, our rheumatologists think that compared to other patients who have rheumatological conditions or on long-term steroids, that these are worse. And there's been a couple of patients that developed PJP. And for that reason, we do give PJP prophylaxis to patients. Um, we give antiviral prophylaxis um, with valciclovir. And I think another interesting thing just to mention, not something that we're doing, but I think something we need to consider is some kind of thromboprophylaxis, um, just given the high VTE rates. Um, you know, there are patients or there are other diseases where that's done. One that I can think of offhand is PNH um, in the pre-epiluzumab era that patients were anticoagulated due to a very severe risk of thrombosis. And the other one is myeloproliferative neoplasms as well, like, you know, they have another high risk. So it's not unprecedented in hematological disorders to do this, but I don't know if we have enough evidence yet to kind of devise a way to do this. But I think something to, to consider in the long term that we might need to consider this. Probably the more patient we will be uh, describing in the literature, the more we will know, and maybe we will have some kind of uh, uh, risk stratification yeah. in order to advise any treatment strategy also prophylactically. So yeah. uh, regarding like the first uh, strategy, the one targeting the clone, you mentioned yeah the uh, role of hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in this setting. Yeah. So where do you envision the bone marrow transplant in the therapeutic arsenal for Vexus syndrome? Yeah, so I think allogeneic transplant is a very attractive option theoretically because it both eradicates the clone, but also replaces the immune system in these patients, which we know is, is a major um, cause of disease. So, and, you know, just to say here that we, we do have a transplant protocol opening at NIH very soon. So a lot of this would probably be colored by what we're going to be doing. I um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> which I will, I will talk about, but I think, I think the key thing here with allogeneic transplant is that it's attractive, but it should be used in a very select group of patients. So most Vexus patients are old, unfortunately. So usually in their 60s and above is the common age group in this, you know, in this disease. Um, and we know that with age, mortality with allogeneic transplant, um, unfortunately, increases. Um, the other thing is a lot of these patients may have been quite sick for years um, with their disease. They're, as I mentioned, on high-dose steroids, um, and they can be deconditioned. So, you know, the patients may not be in the best condition going into transplants. I think that's something we need to consider. That said, I think there are good transplant candidates and there are patients who will benefit from transplant. And I think these are the patients that we need to you know, carefully select. In terms of who would be transplant, um, so I guess I'll tell you what we're doing. Um, so I think you know, patients who have severe transfusion-dependent anemias or myeloid neoplasms, that's pretty straightforward. You know, they would have been probably transplanted even before we knew they had vexus and some people, and that has happened. 
Um, so I think that's straightforward enough that they're fish, um, that would be a good indication. Um, on our upcoming trial, we are actually also including um, patients with an inflammatory phenotype who don't have severe hematologic manifestations, but are refractory to all treatment. And this is because we know that patients with vexes have a very high mortality and that this may be the only treatment, you know, if, if no other treatment is working, that this may be the only chance to eradicate the clone long-term. So that is something we're considering, although our plan is initially to try and enroll patients that have more of a hematological phenotype first and, you know, treat those patients initially. Um, I think myeloma is another tough group. Um, so we're actually planning not to enroll patients with myeloma on our trial. The reason being, as you know, that patients with myeloma tend to do poorly with allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, but we don't really know in Vexus whether that's the case or not, but just for the beginning, we're not planning to enroll them. And at the moment, um, most patients with myeloma who have Vexus are being treated with standard myeloma therapies, um, which often, which may include an autologous stem cell transplant. Um, so in terms of like, what is the evidence for stem cell transplant in Vexus, there's only been one publication so far, um, which had six patients, um, all of whom had Vexus, but also had MDS and one had myelofibrosis. And the conditioning that they used in the, in the majority of these patients was actually fludarabine and desulfan, and most of them got reduced intensity conditioning. And the results are actually generally pretty good in this published cohort anyway. So they have long-term-ish follow-up in three patients. Um, they're all doing pretty well. Two are doing well in the immediate post-transplant setting and one died of infection of, of pneumonia. Um, I think one signal that does seem to be popping up from this case series is that five of them did have GBHD. So that, that might be a concern for our patient cohort um, going forward. And you know, the plans for our protocol, um, we are going to use fludarabine and desulfan. Um, and the reasons we're going with this regimen uh, are really twofold. One is that it's a regimen we use a lot of NIH. So we have a lot of institutional experience using it. And secondly, um, it's also demonstrated pretty good efficacy in other monogenic germline diseases that are somewhat similar to Vexus, not exactly, but things like GATA2 deficiency and GATA2, where there's also a very strong immune component to the disease. Um, this regimen has proven efficacious. Um, so we'll see that the protocol is open. It hasn't enrolled patients yet. We're still doing some last minute things um, in terms of, of regulation, but we hope to be up and running in January. That's the plan. I know there are definitely other patients who have been transplanted in the community that we've been contacted about and seem to be doing well. Um, so I think it is a, a promising treatment for, as I mentioned, a select group of patients, hopefully. I see. So now let me ask you a more practical question. Um, let's change the topic. Let's give us some advice to trainees uh, listening to this um, video podcast, uh, whatever we want to call it. But uh, if you had to choose to give three suggestions to our fellows who would like to begin a research path uh, or become physician scientists, what would you pick? Yeah, I think I think this is a hard question. Um, maybe I'm better at talking about Vexus. I don't know, <laughs> but I'd say- I, I exhausted <laughs> my question for Vexus, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I would say, I think number one is you have to, like, if you want to really become a researcher in a topic, it has to be something that's interesting to you, right? You're going to be spending a lot of your life thinking about this topic. You're going to be going to conferences about this topic. You're going to be spending nights reading about this topic. So it can't be something that bores you. Um, and I think, you know, there is obviously an element of picking something that would be a good niche, but I think it also has to be something that you are happy to, to devote your life to, you know, in terms of research. I think that's number one. I think number two is finding the right environment. And I know this can take, you know, a couple of different tracks. I think, you know, finding someone to mentor you is very important. Um, but I think also, you know, your colleagues within the department are very important. And I, I have found that since I came to NIH, like we have an amazing lab that, you know, we collaborate among ourselves all the time. We bounce ideas off each other and often, you know, see projects together, um, even without necessarily, you know, having everything go through the PI. So I think it's important that you have good colleagues um, that you feel comfortable sharing things with, that you can collaborate with, that, that will help you with your research. I think that's very important. And then I think number three, um, I think it's also important to make sure you advocate for yourself. So I, I think it can be difficult being a trainee Sometimes in a big lab, you know, there's lots of maybe other postdocs or other clinical fellows in there with different projects. I think you need to make sure that you, you have a project that is your project, you know, depending on your level of seniority, but you know, you're, you're there for a purpose, right? You, you, you want to learn how to research, but you also need to progress your career. So I think it's important to advocate for that, make sure you've got a, a good project that you're being supported well with this project. Um, and that, you know, you're given right credit for your work, that you're allowed to present your work and all that. So I think those are the three main elements. There's probably other things that I'm not thinking of right now, but I think those would be the three that come to mind when you ask the question. I think that were amazing suggestions for our fellows. And I, I think I can uh, totally relate to all of the above. Yeah, mm -hmm. interest, environment, either macro and micro and um, yes, absolutely. And not falling in the trap of being a drop in an ocean. That's yeah. absolutely important. Yes, yes. I so I, I think uh, for today we can wrap it up and uh, okay. I really thank you. That was uh, such a nice conversation on Bexas syndrome. I hope that everybody knows now a little bit more about this fascinating disorder and uh, we will um, uh, meet again for a third episode of our Trainee Pearls. Thank you so much, Emma. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much for having me.